This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a podcast of climate ecology and animal justice, where we use books to think about our environmental crisis and what may come next. This is episode two of season two, and it is the second episode in the series I am doing on the concept of animal agency. So last episode, we talked about non-human creativity. In this episode, we're talking about non-human politics and what it looks like to engage with other animals as political agents. Um, So my guest to talk about this, I'm very excited, is Ava Mayer. She is a writer, an artist, a songwriter, novelist, a philosopher, the author of a nonfiction book called When Animals Speak Toward an Interspecies Democracy. Um, She's the author of many other books as well, but that's the one we're going to talk about. Um, It's one of my favorite interviews I've done for the show, um, and I think connects a lot of dots that have come up um, throughout the 40-plus episodes of the show I have done, both talking about other animals as agents, as, you know, subjects of their own life, but also about ways we can make our democracy more democratic and how that might help us confront the issues we face not only to help non-humans, but to help humans as well. In fact, this August, I will be starting a PhD program in environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and some of the questions discussed in this interview are the sorts of questions that I hope to explore um, getting my PhD. How can we transform our political systems to be more inclusive of not only humans, but other species as well? So I hope you enjoy. Uh, The best way to support this podcast would be through subscribing via Patreon, making a small monthly donation as little as $4 a month. That's, you know, $2 an episode. And yeah, go to patreon.com slash storytellingpod. You'll get early access to episodes, membership in the book club, or other perks depending on what level you subscribe at. Um, You can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter, and that gets you a free trial membership in the book club as well. Our next meeting is going to be June 27th, that's a Tuesday, at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific, to discuss the novel The Plague Dogs by Richard Adams. Um, Some of you may remember Adams as the author of Watership Down, a very important novel in, I'm sure, many of our youths. Um, But The Plague Dogs is another novel by him. It's about dogs escaping from an animal research facility, so it'll be an opportunity to discuss non-humans in fiction, as well as animal research and other issues. So yeah, if you're interested in that book club, either subscribe on Patreon, subscribe to the newsletter, reach out to me directly, and we can figure something out. All right, without further ado, here is Ava Mayer. Ava Mayer, the author of When Animals Speak, Toward an Interspecies Democracy, um, and of many other books as well, which we may touch on. Um, So Ava, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so um, I think there's a lot we can talk about, um, but how, maybe we can start with just how did you become interested in this question of how other animals relate to politics and democracy? Well, I think that um, uh, for me, it was always clear that uh, the the more than human animals also had their own opinion on life uh, and the good life relationships with humans and um, yes, many other uh, social and and political issues from my own experience of living with them uh, and also reading about them thinking about them. Uh, But when I began to study philosophy, and before that I already uh, studied arts and was interested in animals in that direction as well, but uh, it became more um, concrete when I studied philosophy. uh, And I found out that there were, um, yeah, first of all, that philosophy is mainly a matter of human beings thinking about human beings, uh, but that there was also quite a lot of prejudice uh, about non-human animal capacities and um, that there were many misunderstandings about the ways that we relate to animals and also the ways that we should relate to animals. And um, I think that my 
interest in um, because I was interested both in language and in uh, politics and um, uh, with both of these concepts uh, you find that humans mostly delineated them um, in uh, relation to humans so when humans think about politics when humans think about language they think about human politics and uh, human uh, language and we find this so normal uh, it's so much part of our everyday lives uh, that we don't even give it uh, a second thought and um, uh, well of course we share the planet with all kinds of other animals who also make sense of their lives and uh, and discuss that uh, with one another um, so, yeah, I think that my, my interest in the question um, uh, took concrete shape when I began to study uh, philosophy and uh, that and um, yeah, then I found that there was um, sort of a, a, a something missing in the way we think about these concepts as humans and um, that there was um, a very strange attitude towards the other animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you talk about how in the history of, of philosophy, there's been a lot of um, kind of de de definition of language as human language um, and defining the animal as, you know, the, the brutes without language. Um, and, but, you know, y you talk about how this isn't really true and you go through lots of examples of animal communication and language from alarm calls to chimpanzees using sign language to you know dogs bowing to signal intent to play um and so in all your and i know you've written um you know other other books on animal language as well so in all your research on this topic you know what has looking at other animals taught you about language well i think that Language is not one thing, also not in the case of humans. So, um, for example, uh, academics use a very specific kind of language to write about life and animals and whatever else they, uh, they write about, uh, which is very different from the way that language works in poetry or the way that language works in everyday encounters with your neighbors that are often repetitive and kind of um yeah words don't always mean very much but they, they have more of a sort of friendly function to signal friendliness uh, uh, and the same is true in uh, relation to other animals there are many different um, ways in which non-human animals lose, use language that are sometimes species-specific, um, sometimes multi-species, uh, sometimes um, uh, involve humans as well. So it, um, in certain uh, language games, humans and other animals both contribute to the meaning that, uh, that is created. Um, and I think this word language, and this is something that Wittgenstein, the philosopher, also um, wrote a lot about, this word language sort of deceives us because we immediately think we know what we're talking about, um, but we don't really because it, it actually means a lot of different things under uh, different circumstances and in uh, relation to different beings. And this idea that language is one thing that we can give a universal definition uh, of um, has been very dominant in uh, in philosophy of language. And in, in that field, um, language was also equated with human language. And um, when that is your starting point, um, uh, it's going to be very hard to um, understand the languages of other animals. So... Um, uh, if if you think that language is one thing, that there's one universal definition that is always true for every language um, uh, everywhere, then uh, not only you obscure what language is and does and what it can do, but also um, close off the way to other forms of uh, meaning making that might or might not uh, might not be language. 
And I think we live in a very interesting time because uh, there's a lot of research about how other animals speak with one another, sometimes using sounds, sometimes using scents or color patterns on their skin, uh, like the Caribbean reef squid who speak, really speak with color patterns, uh, changing color patterns on their skin. Um, and of course, there's a lot that we do not know, but... Um, I think that all of that that research on, on animal languages um, uh, that are sometimes species-specific but also can uh, uh, differ between different communities, um, that, that research really makes the whole idea of language so much more lively and interesting and uh, um, rich. Uh, and I think that because I, I work as... Um, uh, a human being <laughs> also in uh, in different human language games so i'm an academic philosopher but i also engage in the public debate so i write for newspapers over in the netherlands i write novels um uh, my first book of poetry is coming out uh in a couple of months um i'm a songwriter so since i was 14 years old or something i've been writing songs performing them on stage so i think that language is really magical and it really um has the power to do many different things. And I'm also quite um, aware of the fact that how you use language as a human really determines uh, the meaning of what you say. So there's a lot that um, cannot be expressed in uh, academic work, for example, and novels are better suited um, uh, for. But... Um, I think that this this idea that language is not one thing, that it can mean something else uh, in different language games, um, helps with understanding how other animals uh, create meaning. Yeah, uh, you talk about how uh, language can, can create shared worlds between species as well. Um, and one of the examples from, I read this book when it came out, so I think that was maybe almost four years ago, and that has really stuck with me that I bring up often in conversation um, is you talk about uh, this this human and dog in, in Wyoming, uh, Ted Carasote and his dog Merle. Um, do you do you remember their story and, and kind of the significance of it? Yeah, I think that um, uh, it was Sue Donaldson, by the way, who recommended uh, this book to me, um, uh, one of the co-authors of uh, the book Zoopolis. Um, uh, which was quite influential uh, for me too um, and that I forgot to mention when you were asking me about how this whole project got started. Um, uh, but anyway, in this book, the interesting thing is that um, humans very often presume that other animals are somehow tied to their biological capacities and stuck in their life world um, uh, while humans are capable of overcoming uh, patterns that they are um, stuck in in their lives or some have kind of uh, have some kind of flexibility for growth and change and uh, and learning and this book um, uh, which is about um, uh, a dog called Merle um, really shows that uh, other animals too can uh, change and um, humans can support that, uh, witness it, and uh, and be part of it. So what what happens in the story is that um, uh, Merle um, finds Carasodi when he's out camping somewhere. So the dog agency is immediately there in the in the beginning of the story, um, and Carasodi uh, uh, brings um, Merle home. They um, they live together, and um, when he lives in a in a small town where most dogs uh, roam freely, he decides to give Merle more space, and uh, he um, this means that Merle needs to learn the rules of the town, so he can't go after um, cattle. He needs to be careful around traffic. Uh, there are some other situations, specific situations that he needs to learn to deal with. Uh, and, and once he's capable of that, um, uh, Kurosodi, um, uh installs a dog door 
in the uh, the door of his house so that uh, Merle can come and go and be with his friends as he pleases um, or stay at home. And what he describes is that uh, more freedom uh, on the side of the dog actually enriches their relationship and that this also allows the dog in question to make better choices, become smarter and more, um, yeah, I don't know, wise and present um, mm. in in their relationship. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a good illustration, I think, uh, of how we can work towards more freedom for other animals, for animal companions in a way that is um yeah that is doable and also uh somehow responsible yeah i think that there is a lot more room for freedom and agency in other animals lives um that you know we could give them if we thought to or we you know but usually aren't thinking to Yes, and I think that this is also something that the other animals can teach us because in my own life I had a sort of the opposite story with my uh, companion Oli who was a street dog from Romania and he um, uh, he lived on the streets for the first years of his life and then he was caught by dog catchers, lived in a shelter, quite a bad shelter over there. But when he came to Amsterdam, he was around five or six years old uh, and he'd never lived in a house before, nor had a close relationship with a human before. So uh, we needed to create a lot of understanding and he needed to adjust to a situation that was, in a sense, much less free, at least uh, in the in the negative uh, sense of freedom. Um, but also, but he was very eager to make something of it. And uh, with him, I really experienced, um, because I didn't teach him or train him, this would have been rude because he was an adult. He had already his own norms and values and uh, ideas about relationship, including uh, moral ideas. Um, he, he just had very good ideas about how to yeah, interact with others and also taught me a lot uh, in that regard. Um, uh, and I think that on the one hand, the story is perhaps the opposite because I needed to, um, uh, he needed to, uh, learn to walk on the leash, um, which is a restriction of, uh, of his freedom, but which also turned out to be a tool for deliberation. And, uh, I think that, um, for him, the ideal situation would have been much more like Kerasotti's, um, example, uh, but this was not possible in the Netherlands. Uh, it's, it, it, it's too crowded here in, uh, in nearly all areas. And it's also uh, uh, not allowed. But then, yeah, that's, that's something that you <laughs> can choose to <laughs> obey or not. Um, uh, uh, but I think that it's also an example of how you can learn to live together with others. And that um, in these kinds of relationships, the human being changes too, because very often we, uh, when we think about um, social and political change and non-human animals, it kind of feels like they need to learn something or to change in order to, uh, um, yeah, to establish better relations or something. But I think that it's mostly the other way around that humans uh, need to change. And I also think that if you embark on such a project with another animal, that you are quite likely to uh, to change. Yeah, so I think, you know, even if we accept that, you know, other animals communicate, they have language, and that, you know, in these kind of maybe micro-individual settings that they can, you know, change and be changed in their relationships with humans, um, this, the skeptic is going to say, well, that's still not politics, they're still not political agents, you know, they they can't watch a debate and then go out and vote for their preferred candidate. Um, but, you know, maybe that's a limited conception of what politics is. So what what are the ways in which, you know, animal agency manifests in political ways? Well, I think that you already um, 
began to give an answer with when when you said yeah that's a restrictive way of thinking about politics. So a lot of people um, think of politics as uh, voting um, or perhaps uh, attending a street demonstration or perhaps doing some kind of uh, of internet activism. Uh, but in fact, there are of course lots of different um, political uh, practices that um, we that humans uh, take part in and. Uh, Many of these also um, uh, can be found in the lives of animals. So a very easy to understand example is resistance. Uh, there's a great deal of literature about animal resistance. Um, uh, Jason Rebel, for example, wrote a lot about this. And um, he shows by um, uh, carefully describing um, how wild animals uh, resist in circuses, zoos, and uh, other uh, places where they are um, uh, forced to work for humans, that resistance is not accidental, but very often structural, uh, structural that animals cooperate uh, to resist, uh, and that they also shape human practices. So Ribble also discusses uh, the resistance of farmed animals and um, animals, for example, working as soldiers in, uh, in the army, and uh, shows that by their acts, by being unreliable workers, for example, they um, yeah, pushed humans into certain uh, directions. And um, sometimes this led to ending uh, the oppression and exploitation of these animals, uh, and sometimes not. Um, so resistance is, is a practice that you find in uh, many, many, many animal species. Dinesh Wadiwal wrote about the resistance of fish. Um, uh, probably small animals also resist uh, in their own ways. There are different forms of resisting, actual, um, um, yeah, f fighting or physical uh, resistance, but it can also mean avoiding humans or um, changing uh, behavior in a certain way. Um, and there are other um, practices too in which, um, yeah, animal political behavior resembles humans or in which animals uh, cooperate with humans. Um, there are very interesting experiments at the moment being done in animal uh, sanctuaries, such as uh, fine sanctuary, uh, in which humans and other animals um, collectively co-govern the multi-species uh, communities. Uh, so this means that the sanctuaries are set up in such a way that um, uh, humans are not the ones who determine everything, but that the acts um, uh, of animals, their relationships, the roles that they take on in society, um, their, the habits they may create with others, um, uh, co-create how these uh, communities uh, function and are governed. Um, and then there is also the possibility of, um, yeah, sort of anarchist uh, animal practices. So uh, animals who choose to live differently than humans do and um, uh, turn away, who may turn away from humans or um, ignore them or set up their own counter communities and uh, practices in the midst of human domination. Uh, and these can be found with uh, street animals, but also birds. Uh, Patrice Jones, who's also the uh, founder of Fine Sanctuary, wrote a really nice article about um, uh, birds as anarchists. Um, so there are different ways in which we can think about animals and politics. Um, some authors focus more on how they can participate in human um, political practices, um, for example, using liberal democratic uh, ideas and institutions, such as, as for example, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka, and other authors focus more, focus more on the counter practices that I uh, that I just described um, but it all 
means for it, it it all asks for reinterpreting the concepts at stake um in relation to other animals and also uh reforming them together with other animals so you can't simply say this is democracy and then use a human uh conception of democracy and stick it onto onto the other animals and see how they fit in uh, when you take a concept such as democracy you need to really carefully um yeah unpack its meaning in a multi-species context so it always means reinterpreting the concept um uh, but still human concepts that we have human political concepts uh, can play a role in refiguring uh, relationships with the other animals. Yeah, so maybe as a good example of this, because it's it's come up in this interview and it's been mentioned in other interviews I've done. Um, there's you know a very influential book by Will Kimmel and Sue Donaldson called Zoopolis: A Political Theory of Animal Rights, um, and they sort basically they sort other animals into three political categories. Um, and I was wondering if we could just go through kind of one by one and talk about the strengths and shortcomings of their approach. Um, so the the first idea they have is citizenship for essentially for domesticated animals. So dogs, cats, and horses, as well as chickens, pigs, and cows, and others. Um, what is what is meant by citizenship here, and and what do you think of of this category? Well, I think it's it, um, this this sort of follows what I was just saying. So on the one hand, um, we need to think about what citizenship means for other animals. Uh, Donaldson and Kimlika, for example, mention the right to health care, but also the right to political voice. So um, uh, uh, non-human domesticated animals um, should have a say in uh, the questions that concern their lives and that concern how the community uh, functions. Um, and uh, at the same time, once we are going to live with other animals um, in this way, I think um, what we now view as citizenship is going to change quite thoroughly because it means that um, we would live in a very different world. Um, infrastructure would be very different. Uh, our lives uh would look different in terms of consumption uh, of where we live, how we share the space with others. Um, so I think that we can use human citizenship sort of as a, as a starting point for thinking about rights and, uh, and obligations uh, with these animals. Uh, but then once we begin to do it, and I think that some people are... Um, thinking about these models quite seriously um uh, for example in 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 the sanctuary context um uh, things are going to really change and one of the uh interesting things about the citizenship approach and the categorization of uh, animals is that once we are going to treat the other animals better uh, so give domesticated animals more freedom and not terrorize wild animals anim anymore these categories are going to change because um, i think that many domesticated animals are going to leave it's not for nothing that we now have rabbits in cages and uh, birds and uh, i don't know who else and that we lock um, uh, companions up in houses so they're going to go out and um, probably become more wild and at the same time if we stop hunting wild animals and uh, invading their territories and scaring them uh, they are going to be a lot more uh, open towards humans so while this um, idea of, of uh, dividing up animals in these different categories based on the uh, social relations that they have with humans is really important and um, uh, in theory because it opens up the way to thinking about animals as social groups and it really acknowledges uh, animal agency too uh, so but but it's going to uh, lead to a very interesting uh, situation in which 
um, human relations with humans and other animals are going to change uh, very much. Yeah, I think that's a nice lead into their second category, which is you know what they call the, these liminal animals, so creatures who aren't you know in our homes domesticated, but who still share space with human societies. Think you know rats, pigeons, raccoons, and you know politically they they classify these as denizens. So who are who are these denizens, and what's what's the role of this category in in society? Well, I think that in the literature in the animal rights literature and the animal ethics literature, uh, there are very often uh, there's very often a distinction between domesticated animals and wild animals. Uh, and what Donaldson and Kimlicka rightly say is that there are also uh, a lot of animals who sort of fall into be in between these two uh, categories, like crows and uh, house mice and all kinds of. Uh, uh, of creatures, and um, they say that uh, these animals should also have a place to live, um, even though their rights to um, certain spaces are um, uh, really depend on the context and uh, also the history of the of the relationships involved. And they, that they have that they should have some specific rights, like the right not to be uh, stereotyped, and uh, also to engage in, in certain uh, relationships with humans, um, uh, reciprocal relationships that are different from those with, uh, with domesticated animals. So um, the interesting thing about this um, category is indeed that I think a lot of animals will become liminal um, if humans, uh, because liminal animals also generally have more um, agency and autonomy in their uh, in their lives because they are not so dependent on uh, humans and um, some animals already go from domesticated to liminal uh, as in the example of feral cats um, uh, and sometimes animals make the transition the other way um, for example when feral cats uh, go and live in a house uh, in when they are uh, old or something so um yeah this this could be um a very interesting category uh um for the future but i think that in a sense i mean uh, because the, the third category that Donaldson and Kimlicka describe are wild animals and they propose to view them as, uh, as suffering communities. Uh, and I think that's helpful too, uh, in a sense, to um, think about ways in which humans are responsible for harms done to wild animals, um, but still um, should protect their autonomy and agency um, as communities. Um, but I think that... In this model, it's also um, so. What what I really like about zoopolism, what I found find really important, is that they um, that Donaldson and Kimlicka show how uh, political concepts can shed light on our relationships with non-humans. And um, the concepts that they use, citizenship, sovereignty, uh, denizenship for um, liminal animals, um, provide lenses uh, through which we can look at these groups. Uh, but at the same time, because relationships really vary, if you think about wild animals, um, maybe people think about deer or wolves, but there are many wild animals. Are worms wild animals? Um, and are insects wild animals? Or are they liminal? So I think within in these categories, um, uh, the concepts are going to mean something else uh, depending on the context. And there's another problem, and that is that we don't know enough about how animal political communities are organized. So there's a lot of attention uh, right now for animal languages. There's also a lot of attention for animal cultures. And both of these topics show that there's actually much more going on in terms of social and political relationships um, uh, in animal communities. And um, these communities have many shapes. They may function more or less democratically. In uh, When animals speak, I also discuss some examples of, of, of animal democratic action, like voting, because some animals do actually vote and make group decisions in uh, democratic ways. 
Um, but um, uh, being more precise about what it means to share the world with um, such a diversity of species, and we haven't even discussed plants because new research about plants also um, asks us to rethink concepts like language and perhaps uh, politics. Um, but but doing justice to the ways in which other animals um, live their lives, form their communities and uh, relate to human communities asks us to be very specific. And human concepts like citizenship, sovereignty and so on um, can definitely uh, be a guide, specifically in, because the world is so dominated by humans so we are responsible for uh, change and our existing institutions and um, uh, concepts can help us think about that change but in order to know what they are going to actually mean in a multi-species context we're going to have to engage differently with these other animals and it, this does not mean st studying them in more detail because that can be colonial too and we've done that for a long time um, and we might need to do it in some contexts to know how to best deal with certain situations and con conflicts but it mostly means living differently with them uh, because that will give us a better view of uh, what they want from humans. So I think that when we uh, uh, think about social and political change, we kind of want to solve it ourselves as humans always. And um, in the case of non-human animals, this is really problematic because they have their own ideas about how we can um, share the world uh, and and be better um, be better animals as, as humans. So um, I think that our job here is, of course, to do the conceptual analysis and think critically about um, uh, concepts in a multi-species context, but also doing a lot of listening and um, retreating as humans. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe let's think about what what that interspecies democracy could actually look like. Um, you know, I think because as we talked about earlier, a lot of human democracies, certainly in the United States, put a lot more emphasis on representation than participation. You know, everyday people don't necessarily play an active role shaping policy. They just kind of vote for the people who do. Um, and I think the most maybe obvious kind of low hanging fruit ideas people have had for including animals in politics are kind of similarly uh, you know, having a human represent them, whether they have a, you know, a proxy vote in, in parliament or an office of an ombudsperson or something like that. Um, how, you know, these may or may not be good ideas on their own, but how can we go beyond them? I was recently asked to speak about citizens' uh, assemblies in the city of Gouda, um, uh, which is a small Dutch town, um, uh, and they want to think about citizens' participation uh, in politics because uh, over here in the Netherlands there's quite a large gap between uh, politicians and uh, citizens, and um, this is really um, uh, this leads to different problems. There's quite a lot of polarization in uh, politics in the public debate. Um, it's hard to uh, to um, figure out how to democratically make decisions in the context of uh, climate change. We have a nitrogen crisis, which, which is caused by intensive uh, animal agri agriculture um, over here in the Netherlands. And that's um, uh, uh, European legislation is now forcing us to, um, uh, to change that. But there's a lot of resistance, uh, for example, from Dutch farmers. So there's a... Um, many groups of humans do not feel heard in the Netherlands and there's kind of a lack of, um, uh, of decision making in, uh, in the context of the large ecological crisis that we are facing. So different cities, including Gouda, are now thinking about uh, citizens' assembly, citizens' participation to solve some of these problems uh, democratically on a local level and perhaps also um, on a national level because they're also thinking about installing this uh, 
um, in the uh, in the in the national context as they did in Paris too um, uh, some time ago. But then um, the citizens' assembly worked really well, but but their advice uh, wasn't um, uh, listened to uh, by the government. So. In any case, I was asked to come to Gouda to speak about citizens' assemblies in the context of um, uh, animals and nature. So I gave a talk about multi-species uh, citizens' um, uh, assemblies. And um, multi-species can mean two things. It can either mean that human uh, humans should have a say in... Um, uh, that, that different human citizens should have a say about ecological issues or green uh, green issues in their area but it can also mean that um, non-human agents like um, animals perhaps trees and others um, can play a role in deliberation uh, about certain issues and perhaps also uh, decision making so when you look at these cases on the local level and this can be very local like an animal sanctuary or a farm or a nature reserve or it can also be a, a city then um, there are different actors who each um, play a role in how the uh, society is formed in how um, decisions are made that that all sort of influence what what goes on ecologically within a certain uh, setting and um, sometimes deliberation uh, with non-human actors can be direct for example when you ask a cow where she wants to graze or whom she wants to be with or yeah, these these kinds of very concrete questions uh, that you can speak about with other um, with other animals, uh, and sometimes they might be more indirect and ask for more interpretation on the side of humans. For example, when you're dealing with a natural entity um, entity like the sea, but I think that in general this intention this this interest for um uh, citizens assemblies that is not only um here in the in the dutch context but that, that you see um in, in many other space, spaces um provides a new and interesting lens to think about how um we, we can include the voices of the of of non-humans um and specifically animals in processes of uh, decision making about the future also because we very often already do it so um in lots of decisions that are made on the local level for example um, uh, building houses in a certain area there is already some acknowledgement of um, uh, non-human animal agency and rights to land for example in the case of nesting birds or um, certain bats uh, bats are protected animals uh, in the netherlands so we already have some uh, some mechanisms for that and of course, then these um, in the context of um, representative democracy, then the insights from these citizens assemblies um, can either be translated to um, policies or uh, or laws or other more human uh, institutions. Um, but perhaps they also, perhaps this is also a time in which uh, we are finding out that the um, way in which we think about doing politics is not so sustainable and not so good for humans too. Because a lot of the questions that we are dealing with, for example, in the context of climate change, um, transcend national borders. So they ask for more cooperation uh, in a in a global context and another kind of uh, communication too and um, at the same time we find this great gap between um, those who live in the world and those who make the uh, the decisions and um, uh, so there needs to happen something on the on the local 
level two. And and one thing that we haven't mentioned so far is that um, much of this is not simply political, but also intertwined with economic interests, because of course, um, capitalism structures a lot of how we think about politics too, and also um, um, yeah, obstructs change when it comes to non-human animals. Simply, I mean, a lot of humans want to change something, but then humans greatly profit from the exploitation of animals, and uh, and companies want to keep the status quo intact um, because they want to make more. Uh, more profit. So, yes, there are different models for uh, thinking about the political participation of non-human animals. And um, I think that there's more attention from the anarchist side too now for uh, thinking about animal uh, animal democracy, which is which is good. Um, and um, at the same time, uh, we also need humans to take responsibility on the uh, national and international level and um, uh, and the great power of uh, of companies over all of these uh, processes. Yeah, I, I think one of the powerful ideas here is, you know, that we need kind of a systemic transformation of of what our democracy is and how we think about it from something that happens, you know, in isolated meetings and votes to this deliberative process, this participatory process that's going on in different ways kind of all the time. Um, and yeah. that this maybe more participatory deliberative version of democracy is not only a way of bringing other animals into the process, but also, which is kind of more democratic and gives more power to everyday humans as well. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's fun to think about kind of different ways uh, that plays out. You know, another example from the book that I think about often is, as you mentioned, these horses who were taught to use like pictogram symbols uh, to communicate, for instance, you know, whether or not they want a blanket. Um, and it, it makes you wonder whether, you know, could they express whether they want to be ridden, whether they want to be inside or outside, maybe whether they want to be in captivity at all. Uh, and it made me think about, you know, these buttons people are getting for their dogs and cats, where the dog can click, you know, where my friend's cat loves her outside button, because she always wants to go outside, or the dog, you know, maybe hits the treat button or whatever. But do you, you know, what do you think of the potential for kind of these maybe more innovative or newer ways of, of trying to interpret what, what other animals want? Well, I think that they, I think that we already know what other animals want. <laughs> I mean, fair. most, I mean, most of the animals, um, uh, most of the mammals alive now live in, in intensive agriculture. They don't want that. So we know, <laughs> we know that. Um, and I think that I, I read a, um, an article yesterday about parrots that are um, uh, parrots in captivity that are given the option to call other parrots in captivity using a kind of interface, but they're sp actually speaking to other parrots. And um, and the researcher said some things because and they got the idea in uh, in COVID times because humans felt less lonely when they were um, uh, speaking to other humans uh, with video calls and uh, uh, and and these kinds of things. So uh, the researchers thought, let's do that with lonely parrots. And yes, the parrots like it and they call each other very often. And the parrots who make a lot of calls also get a lot of calls back. And it's this is such a a horrific example of yeah. how you can um, uh, do something about the loneliness of parents because it shows it 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 fully shows that yes they are lonely and they do want contact but but they, we inflict this on them we yeah. keep them in captivity so we should remedy the captivity and not give them the opportunity to give video calls and you have the same thing about uh, tinder for zoo animals so that they can find their own partner instead of being forced to be with a, a partner that they don't want to have sex with because humans want animals in zoos to have sex with each other but then also they do not too often because then the zoo animals are of course killed but these things are all they're all they have something very horrible in it and i think that 
um, the the cat and dog buttons may seem more benign, um, uh, but at the same time, we. It, it it's also we already know what they want if we look at them i mean cats have a very good way of showing they want to go outside namely they walk to the door or they look at you right. you know right. so it's um uh and and i think that on the one hand it can be a playful way of of getting to know your um companion better and um with my dog companion daughters i went to the dog school a lot because she likes it and we do the exercises and it's just um, uh, a way of, um, yeah, it's, it's a form of play or a form of, um, having some, some happy time together, doing some, doing, doing a game or something, but it's, it's not, um, the, the answer to the problems that many animals have. And I think that humans find it hard to, come to terms it's very very hard to live with uh companion animals and to make them happy i mean with cats when they go outside it's easier because they can hang out with their cat friends and and lead their their own lives uh, uh apart from us but with dogs and i mean all the animals that humans keep in their houses and gardens uh and they have fences uh uh, around it's very very difficult i um uh, adopted um a lot of uh, ex laboratory mice uh, 25 in total in different groups um and i find it very hard to um to deal with the fact that they live in captivity and they'd rather not and there's also not a possibility to really change that unless they are mm -hmm. old because then they can sort of walk around um but uh but they can't i can't rewild them or uh or mm -hmm. anything uh and it's taught me a lot about the uh, inner lives of mice about their uh practices of care um because they are very um good carers and they are um uh, they have a lot of ways of uh communicating with each other and with me and um a mouse is definitely not a mouse so it did teach me that um but it's it's also very hard and it's very sad because they usually uh do not live to be uh, much older than 2 years old so they they die uh they die often as well, but they every day they show me how difficult it is to um, to live with others uh, that you are responsible for. And I think that the more you read about um, other animals, um, the harder it gets. And uh, uh, technology humans often turn to technology as a way of um, I don't know not having to make certain decisions. Oh, we need more technology and then we'll know mm -hmm. what to do. Or, oh, mm -hmm. yes, technology might solve this problem or technology might solve that problem. And of course, sometimes we do find out things uh, using a, a technology. It's the same in, in relation to humans, but it's um, there's a great sadness to it uh, as well. And it shouldn't um, stand in the way of... Uh, actually attending to animals mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good point and i maybe we could you know that was answer was a lot about um captive or domestic animals um and maybe we can uh have one more question on the book uh with regard to wild animals um and talk about what it looks like to you know engage democratically with wild populations and you have a case study in your book that's about this conflict between wild geese and an airport, um, feel free to use that example or, or any other, um, but kind of what would you say are important first steps we could take to start engaging democratically with wild populations? I think a very important first step is to recognize them as a party in the conflict or the situation uh, that you are dealing with because what happens now is that humans very often make the decision um, uh, for them so not with them so uh, in the in the case i discuss with the wild geese in the netherlands um, uh, there's a conflict um, between humans and geese. I think that humans <laughs> perceive it as conflict mostly, but then the geese do um, experience harm. Um, so um, there were uh, not so many wild geese in the Netherlands. Um, 
until the 1970s, but then because of um, uh, changes in the in the landscape and also uh, fertilizers of the grass and also um, uh, shooting of foxes, all kinds of reasons, there became more and more and more uh, geese. And uh, now they are seen as a plague and um, it sometimes leads to um, a specific dangerous situations, for example, around the airport, even though there the danger is not just for the humans, but obviously for the geese too. Uh, but there's also a, a problem with farmers who um, don't want them on their land. And what you find is that in this case, many groups of humans speak to each other. So um, policymakers, farmers, um, companies like Schiphol Airport, activists, but then the geese are also active agents. They are um, uh, creative beings who learn throughout their lives. They have very, um, uh, um, uh, they have a lot of social relationships that uh, matter to them, and they um, have their own kinds of knowledge. So the first step in solving this, in because what the Dutch people always do when they have a problem with animals is that they uh, kill them. So they they shoot them, uh, but it doesn't work because geese fly. So when there's when the land stays the same, new groups of uh, geese will come and settle there. So um, it doesn't work, and it's also violent and um, uh, unjust. So. Um, another way could be the, recognizing that the geese are active agents with their own ideas about the land who make maps in their mind of the land and think about nice places to settle and um, uh, speak to them through landscape design or uh, perhaps um, uh, interventions with robot birds in spaces that are dangerous uh, or harmful either to humans or to the geese. I mean, a very important um, step for the humans is as well to accept the presence of uh, of other animals mm -hmm. and, uh, and appreciate them instead of uh, viewing them uh, as a pest. But this is, of course, not always uh, possible. And then you need to negotiate. And that begins with recognizing the other as another. And then with, um, yeah, thinking about creative solutions uh, together with these animals. So it's kind of a trial and error situation in which you can um, investigate, yeah, what the alternatives are in um, uh, yeah, guiding the geese in a certain way, asking them to do something, responding to, uh, to their acts. Uh, and the thing is that geese of course also discuss these things with each other so once you've made it clear to them that this is the situation um, or they made that clear to us um, then they will also um, tell that to other geese and um, hopefully they will um, uh, yeah adjust to the new situation uh, so and I think that recognizing other animals as as others in these kinds of situations um just really changes the uh the starting point uh, of the of the situation and opens up new venues for action mm -hmm. yeah so we've been talking about your your nonfiction book um but you know you're also a visual artist a songwriter and a novelist um so with our last few minutes, I, I thought we could talk about uh, fiction and, you know, what what are you able to do and say in your novels that maybe you aren't able to do in a nonfiction book, like When Animals Speak? I think for me, it's sort of in my own life, it, it went the other way around. So I began by writing stories and songs and fiction and um, and making other things. And then at a certain point, I felt the need to be more argumentative or to be able to articulate a different kind of argument uh, about relationships between humans and other animals. And I found philosophy and academic philosophy helpful for that. So I, um, uh, yeah, what I said before is that how you say something um, really matters for what you can say. And I think that novels are very good at showing the 
ambiguities of life and the difficulties of life and uh, appeal more to a sense of um, yeah appeal more to people's feelings and also their sense of beauty um, and and wonder or something um, where philosophy is much more about trying to say something uh, that is solid and uh, and fixed and um, of course it's never fully that so there's always um, yeah uh, air coming in and out it's never a, 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 a really a wall or something but it's a, it's a very different way of uh, um, of saying something and I think that the novels are also um, perhaps better at showing people how how we can do it in how how we can live differently with other animals or the the different worlds that are already sort of hiding behind the world that we see in front of us um and yeah i mm-hmm. think that that i'm i'm quite uh fortunate in the sense that i can do these different uh, things because it takes me places too. Hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious about how you, you know, how and whether you seek to depict other animals' voice and agency and other species' voice and agency in in fiction and kind of what that. I don't know if you have a process for for doing that or a way of thinking about that as a human I'm- writing other voices. I never think about what I do, and this is true <laughs> true for my uh, uh, novels and also for my academic work. So I just sit down and uh, and do it. And I think that um, in so in my last novel, which is about the sea, the North Sea flooding the Netherlands, and it's not been translated into English yet, but it's um, uh, uh, it came out in in the Netherlands here last year. Um, uh, I, I wrote about the sea as a protagonist um, and also about all the other animals living in the sea, but also the humans as, um, uh, as animals. And uh, so what happens is that the sea um, comes onto the land one kilometer a day. So it, it, it sort of gradually takes over uh, the country. And some people read it as a, as a dystopian book. Um, some people read it as a, uh, as a, as a sort of... Uh, critique of Dutch politics because it also relies a bit on how politicians uh, responded to the to the COVID uh, pandemic, um, and but some people really see kind of the movement of, of nature speaking back and um, the um, yeah the voices of, of of all of the other animals and plants and others that um, uh, that gain um, volume that. Uh, that take up uh, take up space, but that's not it's 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 never something that I think about uh, that I think about beforehand. I I think that the work also has its own agency, and that uh, the important part for me as a as a writer is to be uh, porous and um, and listen to that. Um, there is one project that I'm doing uh, in which I am more actively engaging with non-human agency, and that's a multi-species art collective that I uh, formed with a human artist, Gijsje Heemskerk, and um, our dog companions. Um, uh, And in this art collective, we um, uh, create artworks that are uh, um, multi-species, but we also um, conceive of the the world and our audience um, as a multi-species place. So we also make art um, for the other um, uh, animals, um, often working uh, in specific locations um, and with uh, specific communities. So that's kind of it's a, it's both a um, a research project and um, and an art project. So, but there we are really thinking a lot about how to deal with all of the different uh, uh, voices involved and um, how to deal with different uh, forms of artistic agency and also how to respectfully engage uh, with others as 
human artists in uh, certain areas. Cool. Um, is, is any of your are any of your novels available in English? Uh, yeah, Bird Cottage is uh, available in English, and um, if people are interested, they can always go to my website and uh, uh, yeah, look up the different projects there. Great. I'll include a link to your website. Um, is there anything else you want to add? No, I think we discussed quite a lot. <laughs> uh, so now it's time to uh, to do it. Eh? I think that um, uh, everybody listening to this podcast has the power to make some kind of change. And, you know, sometimes the things we do feel very small, like um, uh, living with the laboratory mice, as I do, or I also have a, a group that assists the frogs and toads over the across the road when they come out of hibernation. I have a group of uh, volunteers assisting. Um, and these, these things may feel feel small for us but for the other animals they mean everything and uh, yeah better understanding that we share the world with many others who who have their own worlds and tending to multi-species life worlds is a way in which we can make a difference and it's really the only thing we can do well thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Um, if you did, again, please consider supporting this podcast with a small monthly donation on Patreon. A link to my Patreon page is in the episode description, along with a link to Ava's website. She mentioned Vine Sanctuary in our conversation. I'm hoping to interview someone from either that sanctuary or another one to talk about how... Um, you know, animals are able to cho choose and self-direct their lives to some extent in the sanctuary setting um, for a future episode, um, but that will not be the next episode. Uh, next, we're looking at a movie and a novel um, in which, as Dr. Ian Malcolm puts it, life finds a way. Um, so, hope you're looking forward to that. Uh, you can get early access to that in other episodes. Um, Again, by subscribing on Patreon, or you can just wait. Um, should be out by the end of May. And hope you have a great day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com. Ah!